This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Good evening. My name is Peter Abdella, and on behalf of the Burke Lectureship, it is my honor as chair of the Burke Board of Governors to welcome you to tonight's presentation by Dr. Kelly Lytle Hernandez of UCLA our final in-person offering this year. Even as we join together tonight, our prayers and hopes continue to rise up for all the rescue efforts and relief needed following the many natural disasters we've seen. Also for a just and peaceful resolution of the war in Ukraine and other conflicts, as well as for aid to the too many victims of tragedy and terror around the globe and here at home. First, let me say a couple of words about the lectureship um, before I introduce our speaker. The Burke Lectureship is an endowed lectureship here at UCSD that was established over 35 years ago in honor of Father Eugene Burke, who was a distinguished theologian, church historian, advisor to the United Nations Commission on Human Rights, and a Paulist priest who spent his last years here at UCSD in the campus ministry. Shortly before he passed away, many of the people of all stripes who had been inspired by him began to raise the funds to help endow a lectureship on religion and society on this campus. Like Father Burke, the lectureship has been committed to providing the widest possible range of religious traditions and ethical positions and to providing a free public forum for civil discourse on the relationship between religion and and society, and on the religious, spiritual, and ethical dimensions of being human, especially in our pluralistic world. By my count, tonight's is our 80th offering since 1985. We are dedicating all our events this academic year to Dick McCormick, who passed away in 2021. Dick and his wife Grace were prime movers in bringing this lectureship to birth, and we're honored that Grace is here with us this evening once again. To learn more about this lectureship and its future events, or to make a donation yourself, please be sure to connect with us through the UCSD link to our Burke Lectureship website. I should mention that among our distinguished guests tonight um, is the former provost of Thurgood Marshall um, College, uh, Cecil Lytle, who is here as well. So we welcome you especially this night. Our speaker this evening is the epitome of what has come to be called the engaged scholar. I learned this firsthand a few weeks ago when I asked her agent to see if I might be able to sit down with the speaker over coffee or lunch prior to her visit to UCSD, since I live only a few blocks from the UCLA campus. Her agent replied very graciously, she is eager to meet you too, but is working nonstop on the current immigration crisis. I'd say that's engaged. This did not come as much of a surprise. Since graduating from UCSD 
in ethnic studies in 1996, she has been tireless. If you visit her profile on UCLA's Latino Policy and Politics Institute website, you will learn that Dr. Kelly Lytle Hernandez is a professor of history, African-American studies, and urban planning at UCLA, where she holds the Thomas E. Lifka Endowed Chair in History. She is also the director of the Ralph J. Bunch Center for African-American Studies at UCLA and is an elected member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. One of our nation's leading experts on race, immigration, and mass incarceration, her award-winning books, Migra, A History of the U.S. Border Patrol in 2010, and City of Inmates, Conquest, Rebellion, and the Rise of Human Caging in Los Angeles from 2017, testify to her prodigious scholarship. City of Inmates won a slew of prizes in 2018, among them the John Hope Franklin Book Prize from the American Studies Association and the American Book Award. But she is no ivory tower academic. Currently, Professor Lytle Hernandez is the director and principal investigator for Million Dollar Hoods, a university-based community-driven research project that maps the fiscal and human costs of mass incarceration in Los Angeles. As such, she has testified before the state legislature and has been found, quote, at City Hall with her students advocating for change. The Million Dollar Hoods team itself won a 2018 Freedom Now Award from the Los Angeles Community Action Network. For her leadership, Professor Laita Hernandez garnered awards from KCET, PBS, and from the South LA Parent Student Advocacy Organization, CADRE. And in 2019, as you may have already read, um, she was named a James D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Fellow, the so-called Genius Grant, for both her historical and contemporary work. What makes it into our history textbooks, and what doesn't, and who doesn't, and why? It's not just an educational question, it's a moral question. I've been told recently that at least in Catholic circles, it's the historians who are allowing us to ask moral questions that theology seems to have missed. Now in its paperback edition, her latest work, which we will hear about tonight, shines a light on an episode in both United States and Mexican history that led to the eruption of the 1910 Mexican Revolution and on what enduring lessons we might learn from it. This book recently shared the prestigious 2023 Bancroft Prize in American History and Diplomacy from the trustees of Columbia University. Undaunted, I'll keep trying for that coffee or lunch, (laughs) but for now, please uh, join me in welcoming back to UCSD for the first time as a scholar, professor and rebel historian, Kelly Lytle Hernandez.
just wonderful to be here. So thank you very much, Peter, Mary, um, the Burke Lecture Committee, Andrew Waltz for the work that you've done, Brittany Tran for the work that you've done. Thank you to each of you. And also before I begin, I want to say a very special thank you to my father, Cecil Lytle, who is an icon here at, at UCSD. And you raised me to be a rebel. And I thank you for that. And I, I owe you everything, Dad. So everyone, give it up to Cecil. So what I'm going to do tonight is I am going to provide a quick overview of this new book, um, Bad Mexicans, Race, Empire, and Revolution in the Borderlands. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to first introduce you to the rebels at the heart of this book and talk about why I think a group of Mexican rebels are really important to U.S. history. And then I'm going to double back and take us deeper inside of this book and read a couple of excerpts. So you ready for this? Okay, it's like a layered approach. You've got to stay on top of it, right? So this book, Bad Mexicans, tells the story of a group of Mexican dissidents who fled Mexico in the early 20th century um, to be able to come to the United States to incite a revolution against the dictator back in Mexico. That dictator was a man named Porfirio Diaz, and he ruled Mexico between 1876 and 1911. These rebels came to the United States. They were known as Magonistas, or as Porfirio Diaz called them, malos mexicanos, bad Mexicans. They came to the United States in January of 1904, where they crossed the border into Laredo, Texas. Within days of crossing the border, they noticed that they were being followed everywhere. There were men hiding behind trees and peeking inside of windows. And so they ran to San Antonio and then to St. Louis. And then after arrest, they began to live on the run throughout the United States. Um, although they were living on the run, they were able to start a political organization, the PLM, El Partido Liberal Mexicano. They were able to relaunch their rebel newspaper known as Regeneración, and they even established an army, and it's an army of the dispossessed, an army of migrant workers, of cotton pickers, of ordinary people who were able to raid Mexico four times between 1906 and 1910. Now, these raids spoke, they stoked fear across the United States. Any idea why? Why do we care what's happening in Mexico? US well, interest. U.S. interests, you got it, right? So by the early 20th century, the United States capitalists had a major stake in Diaz's Mexico. U.S. citizens owned about a quarter of the Mexican land base and dominated key industries, railroads, mining, and, and other things. So I like to think about Mexico as the place where a lot of U.S. citizens either made or multiplied their millions. So when the Magonistas, this PLM army, raided Jimenez, Mexico in 1906, the United States government decided to work really closely with the Mexican government to shut down this revolution before it could um, harm any U.S. interests in Mexico. So the United States Department of War the U.S. Postal Service, Department of Labor, Department of Commerce, more Immigration Service, U.S. Marshals, cops, and de deputies across the country got together with the Mexican regime and stitched together a cross-border counterinsurgency team. They did everything they could to arrest, to extradite, deport, kidnap, or kill as many Magonistas as possible across the borderlands. Despite this cross-border counterinsurgency team, the Magonistas, these migrant workers, these cotton pickers, these miners, 
were able to outsmart and outrun this counterinsurgency team. And they were able to incite the outbreak of the 1910 Mexican Revolution from the United States. It's an extraordinary story of spies and rebels and fugitives. It's about armed raids. It's about love affairs and betrayals and people writing in secret codes and ciphers. It's got everything that you need, right, for an extraordinary film. It's a riveting cinematic tale. I was first drawn to the story when I was a graduate student, and I read about the Magonistas in a Mexican history course just a little bit, and I knew it was epic, an absolutely epic story. I began to read everything that I could get my hands on about the Magonistas, published here, published in Mexico, wherever. And I wanted to figure out, why is it that no one told this story? I'm from here. I'm from San Diego, California. No one ever told me about the Magonistas. Right? I was talking to a few of you about this earlier today. What would it have meant for me as a young person growing up in the borderlands to have known about these extraordinary people who had incited a revolution from my homeland? I needed that knowledge. So I pursued it for myself. And I also wanted to figure out how I could write this story for a bigger audience and how it really struck at the heart of American history. In writing this book, I think I figured out how the Malgonistas strike at the heart of American history. So you ready for that part of the lecture now? Yes, All right, let's get at it. So the Magonistas rebelled against a dictator in Mexico, but that dictator's reign grew under the wing of U.S. empire. So in fact, U.S. empire, U.S. imperialism, takes its very first steps, its baby steps, in Diaz's Mexico. I think many of you probably know that the United States government spent the 19th century charging across the North American continent, gobbling up land for its white citizens to occupy. Ginned up on the fantasy of manifest destiny, these arriving Anglo-Americans dubbed themselves as settlers, and backed by troops, they fought to extinguish indigenous claims to land and life across the region. By the mid-19th century, the U.S. settler state, also known as the White Man's Republic, began to seriously consider a very new kind of expansion of imperialism. And that new kind of expansion was economic and political domination without territorial acquisition. This is the birth of imperialism. They began this imperialism in Diaz's Mexico, and Diaz was a legendary military general in Mexico, who seized power by coup d'etat in 1876 and refused to let it go until he was thrown out by the Magonistas and others in 1911. So the Magonistas story is right at the heart of the rise of U.S. empire and its first steps in Mexico. Now, during his reign, Porfirio Diaz invited foreign investors to buy land, extract resources, and use labor without directly um, assuming control over territory or governance. By 1900, U.S. citizens, um, including everyone from these like one-pick miners to some of the most important figures of the robber baron or the industrial era, they owned 130 million acres of land in Mexico. It's about a quarter of the Mexican land base. And about one half of all U.S. investments abroad were in Diaz's Mexico. So if Diaz's Mexico goes down, the rise of the industrial era in the United States goes with it. And this is why the United States is so invested. 
People like Edward Doheny, William Randolph Hearst, John D. Rockefeller, the Guggenheims, and more all had millions of dollars invested in Diaz's Mexico. And they were quite arrogant about it, right? Here you see this quote by William Randolph Hearst. I really don't see what's to prevent us from owning all of Mexico and running it to suit ourselves. Now, under Porfirio Diaz, that is basically what they did. Now, this rise of U.S. empire, or what some call the integration of the U.S. and Mexican economies, it displaced millions of Mexicans, namely campesinos, rural folks, indigenous folks, and ignited mass migration from Mexico to the United States. This is the origins of mass Mexican labor migration to the United States is in U.S. economic penetration into Mexico that displaced millions of people. The violence of the Mexican Revolution that raged between 1910 and 1917 just accelerated the push of Mexican migrants into the United States. By the 1920s, Mexican migrants would become the primary low-wage labor force across the southwestern United States. To a large degree, it remains so to this day, right? Here we are in San Diego. By 1980, Mexicans had become the largest immigrant group um, arriving in the United States, ending Europe's long dominance in the U.S. immigration story. By 2010, more immigrants had arrived from Mexico than any other country in U.S. history. Today, Latinos led by Mexican-Americans and Mexican immigrants constitute the largest, one of the largest demographic groups in the United States. Um, they are the largest in many towns and cities across the Southwest. And by 2045, the United States is projected to be a minority uh, white nation with Mexican-Americans and Mexican immigrants at the lead of that transformation. In other words, the rise of U.S. empire and the outbreak of the 1910 Mexican Revolution are not just stories in Mexico. They are seminal events in U.S. history. They changed who we are as a people. They made this beautiful community in which we live today. That's what makes this a part of American history. But it's critical to note that Mexico's labor migrants were not America's immigrants. And their arrival in mass at the beginning of the 20th century ignited a new field of race and iniquity in the United States. So since the U.S.-Mexico War of 1846 to 1848, Anglo-Americans have largely regarded um, people of Mexican descent as a conquered, mixed-race people, slotted by manifest destiny to serve the settlers or to disappear. Migrating from job to job across the American West, Mexico's labor migrants built this region's industries while running headfirst into a web of white supremacy. They confronted low wages, dangerous working conditions, segregation, racial violence, and the emergence of a racially biased immigration regime that many scholars now dub Juan Crow similar to Jim Crow. In fact, this book about a revolution in Mexico begins with the story of a lynching in Texas. So I want to read to you the first two paragraphs of this book. They lit the pyre, and they watched him burn. Antonio Rodriguez, a 20-year-old ranch hand, murdered a white woman, they said. White men from nearby farms formed a posse to track him down while the other residents of Rock Springs, Texas, some 400 of them, met at the edge of town and piled kindling at the base of a mesquite tree. The posse soon arrived with a cowboy in the lead, dragging Rodriguez by a lasso looped around his neck. 
The mob laughed as they chained Antonio to the tree and doused him in kerosene. Someone threw a match, and 30 minutes later, when Antonio Rodriguez was dead, the residents of Rock Springs returned quietly to town, and business was resumed. It was November 3, 1910. Mexican-American journalists in the U.S.-Mexico borderlands reported the grisly details of Rodriguez's murder, condemning it as an act of racial terror akin to the lynching of African-Americans in the South. Newspapers in Mexico picked up the story. Quote, Lynching is not practiced by the blonde Yankee, except upon beings for ethnic reasons he considers his inferiors, fumed the editors of the Mexico City paper El Debate. Another paper dubbed Anglo-Americans the, quote, barbarous whites of the North, deriding them as giants of the dollar, but pygmies of culture. There is indignation among Mexicans here over this lynching, reported El País. By November 8th, riots had erupted across Mexico. Targeting the considerable number of U.S.-owned businesses and homes, the protesters smashed windows and tore down American flags while chanting, Mueren los Yankees, death to the Americans. The police arrested hundreds of people. In one case, officers drew sabers and descended upon a crowd, killing one man by stabbing him through the neck. The protests continued on the streets and in the press, prompting Henry Lane Wilson, the U.S. ambassador to Mexico, to issue a public warning. The United States government will, quote, leave nothing undone to protect U.S. citizens and property in Mexico. It was a threat. The United States would invade Mexico if attacks on U.S. interests did not cease. The protests raged on. Ambassador Wilson decided to visit General Porfirio Diaz, the dictator of Mexico, to insist that he put a stop to the anti-American disturbances. But the beautiful thing is that due to the Magonistas and others, it was too late. Mexico was already on the road to revolution. So... What I want to do now is take us a little bit deeper inside of this book, introduce you to some of its major characters, the real people who lived and incited this revolution, and into some of the activities that they engaged in. All right, so you ready for that part of the book? Let's go. All right. So there are a couple of people who are central to this story. Librado Rivera here is a teacher. He taught math and geography, um, many other subjects in San Luis Potosí. He was a quiet man, a reserved man. His friends nicknamed him as El Fakir because he was often the most quiet person, ascetic person in the room. Juana Belen Gutierrez de Mendoza, altogether, let's say this beautiful woman's name, <laughs> Juana Belen Gutierrez de Mendoza, was an autodidact, cross-dressing labor organizer from the mountains of Durango who cut her teeth by demanding better working conditions and labor and, um, and higher wages for her husband and other miners in Durango. She was arrested dozens of times in Mexico. And rather than sign her name whenever she was arrested, she would simply write sedition and rebellion. <laughs> so badass woman, right? She would go on. She had fights with some of the people in the center of this revolution, but she would go on to join Emiliano Zapata's rebel army and helped to ghostwrite his plan de ala. And she would go on throughout most of the 20th century to advocate for women and indigenous rights in Mexico. I think everyone should know Juana's name. Antonio Villarreal, any professors out there? Come on now, we're at UCSD. We got a couple, right? 
He was a literature professor who once got into a duel um, over a literary dispute. He killed the man and was sent to prison in Mexico, was released, came to the United States, and joined the revolution. So that's just a couple of the people. But at the center of it all was this man, Ricardo Flores Magón. He was a journalist who looked more um, like a girthy professor than a revolutionary. He was charismatic, but he was also vitriolic. He edited this newspaper, Renacion, Regeneration, in which he dared to print the words that nobody else would. You have to understand that in Diaz's Mexico, he dominated and controlled the press. And so he made sure he managed the narrative. On the pages of Regeneración, Ricardo would dare to say things like, General Diaz has killed democracy, which he did. He stole ballot boxes. He threatened people who didn't vote his way. Um, People would show up shot in the back. He was absolutely killing democracy. Ricardo wrote that um, Porfirio Diaz was authoritarian and despotic. He had made Mexicans the servants of foreigners. If people didn't believe what he was writing on the pages of Generacion, he told them the government press is a social intoxicant that perverts the public opinion, making us think that our absolute monarchy is a democratic republic. Nobody said this stuff in Diaz's Mexico. And when people pushed back, when Diaz tried to spread a rumor that Ricardo Flores Magón was a revolutionary, a public enemy number one, Ricardo punched back and said, we are not revolutionaries, but we will be if Diaz's tyranny does not stop. The tyranny did not stop. So for such words and positions, Diaz had Flores Magón arrested numerous times, has smashed their printing presses, and even issued a gag order against every um, rebel in Magón's group that no newspaper in Mexico could publish any of their writings. So when this happened, in late 1903, the Magonistas fled Mexico to come to the United States to continue inciting a revolution. They began their flight to the United States by heading to Laredo, Texas. They arrived in Laredo in January of 1904, and they settled among the large number of Mexican immigrants and Mexican-Americans in that region and began to relaunch their rebel newspaper, Regeneración. But as I noted before, within weeks of arriving, they saw that men were bouncing behind trees and peeking inside of their windows and following them everywhere. So they fled Laredo, and they went to San Antonio, and then they went to St. Louis, and then they began to live on the run. They lived everywhere from Texas to Missouri to California to Canada to northern Mexico. They're constantly on the move while they're trying to put out copies of Regeneración. Still, by 1906, these rebels on the move were able to relaunch Regeneración, and they're smuggling it into Mexico in Sears canisters, right? Migrant workers who are making the rounds, seasonal rounds, are carrying it with them in their shirts, under their hats, and passing it around to the copies of Regeneración are tattered. They're reading it to each other by fire in the camps, labor camps, out in the fields, and they're passing the word of revolution and rebellion. They're extraordinary. The Magonistas were able to relaunch or to launch this political party, El Partido Liberal Mexicano, the PLM. It's going to challenge Porfirio Diaz in an upcoming election. And they established this army that we talked about. And here you see a credential that's signing someone into the PLM army where people vow to the death to fight to end Porfirio Diaz's reign. After they launch all of this, they... Um, are following activities in Mexico, and there's a very large labor uprising at a U.S.-owned mine in Cananea, Mexico. 
The result of that uprising is that Mexican authorities and U.S. authorities killed dozens of Mexican miners who were fighting for better wages and to end occupational segregation in Cananea, where Mexican workers were held to lower paid positions, forced to live in the canyons, and Anglo-American managers came in and received all the higher um, paying positions. After this uprising and the killing of dozens of Mexicans, the PLM vowed to launch an all-out revolt across Mexico within one year's time. As part of this revolt, they announced that they would be demanding a new program for Mexico. And that program included many things. They demanded an end to child labor. They demanded an end to debt servitude. They demanded free elections for all. And most important, they demanded that all the land that had been stolen from indigenous and rural communities be returned to them. Now, this was an extraordinary threat to U.S. interests in Mexico. Alarmed by this PLM program or plan for transforming life for Mexicans in Mexico, the United States decided that they were going to work very closely with the dictator, Porfirio Diaz, to suppress this uprising before it could begin. And here you see that President Teddy Roosevelt ordered the United States um, Department of War to go to the utmost limit in proceeding against these so-called revolutionists. And they had one year to shut down this revolution. Very quickly, beginning in the summer of 1906, the U.S.-Mexico borderlands from San Diego to Texas were on lockdown. Soldiers, marshals, deputies across the region were hunting Magonistas. They were ready to thwart any threat to U.S. investments in Mexico. Still, the PLM army, again, recruited among cotton pickers and miners and migrant workers, right? Still today, we often think about migrant workers as laborers only. I am talking about intellectuals, political thinkers, people who are turning the page of history from the camps. They were ready to fight. On September 26 of 1906, Juan José Arredondo, a grandfather with a gruff, gruffy voice who had lost his land when Diaz came to power, he led 60 PLM fighters in a pre-dawn raid on the small town of Jimenez, Mexico. By noon, they had locked the mayor and all public officials in the local jail and declared Jimenez to be free of Diaz's rule. And then they marched out of Jimenez to free the next town. As soon as they left, someone opened up the jail, the mayor got out, and he called the local garrison. And the garrison took off in pursuit of the Magonistas. They chased the Magonistas across the borderlands for several days. They killed several in a shootout at a local ranch. But in the end, most of the Magonistas, most of the rebel fighters, made their way back across the border to the United States, where they thought that they would find safe harbor. They did not find safe harbor, because the United States was determined to shut down this revolution. So infuriated by the 1906 raid, the Diaz regime sent more Mexican spies to infiltrate the PLM north of the border, and they ordered Mexican consular officials to work with U.S. agents to arrest, to extradite, to deport, kidnap, or kill as many Magonistas as possible. So as they're hunting down the Magonistas across the United States, again, Canada, Mexico, wherever they could find them, um, the Mexican government hires this man. Thomas Furlong of the Thomas Furlong Secret Service Agency. Thomas Furlong is a great 
character. He's like the scrappy spy man from St. Louis. He's always trying to get the next contract away from the Pinkertons. And he's determined to get this contract and turn it into the biggest case of his career. One of the things that Furlong contributes to the hunt for the Magonistas is that he is able to infiltrate the United States postal system. We're not quite sure how he does it. He either hires someone who's always working there or he plants somebody in the postal service. But Pinkerton spies begin to collect up the Magonistas' letters to one another. They'd pull the mail out, they'd open up the envelope, take out the letter, copy it down, then put the letter back in and send it on its way, hoping that the Magonistas wouldn't figure out that they were being followed, right? That the United States and Mexican government were following their plans and their ideas. Now, the Magonistas did figure out that their letters were arriving violada or violated, and they began to write in ciphers and secret codes. They used pseudonyms. They passed every letter through at least five or six intermediaries. And here is one of their stolen letters that's written in secret code. If I had on a short sleeve shirt, you can see my son and I have matching tattoos written in the cipher right here. It says, Land and Liberty, Tierra y Libertad, which is the battle cry of the Magonistas. So these letters that are actually held in an archive in Mexico City are the heart of this book, is how we know about the Magonistas. Because the United States government with the Pinkerton, the Furlong spies, are stealing all of their letters and archiving them in Mexico City, that takes us to the front lines of their revolution for us to tell this story. Now, it's by stealing all these letters and following the Magonistas across the country that uh, Furlong and his men are able to arrest numerous Magonistas. They arrest Juan Jose Arredondo and the Jimenez Raiders across Texas, holding them for extradition to Mexico. They deport Magonistas from Arizona, which I believe is the first mass deportation of Mexicans in U.S. history. They use the stolen letters to track Ricardo Flores Magón and other movement leaders everywhere they go. So now I want to take you back inside of the book to a point in the story when Lerato Rivera is being followed by Furlong and his men. And it's mostly all the stolen correspondence is how we know where he is at any given time. So this is Furlong. We knew Rivera's whereabouts continuously from the time he left St. Louis, boasted Furlong. By January of 1907, Furlong had tracked Rivera to Texas, where he had connected with the PLM gunrunner Antonio de Pio Arujo, whom Mexican, Mexican and U.S. operatives identified as using a string of pseudonyms and code names in PLM correspondence. In a letter Arujo mailed at 3.30 a.m. from Waco, Texas, he wrote about how busy he had been collecting dulces y escobas, bullets, and dynamite, for a raid on Matamoros, just across the border from Brownsville. He had already stashed 14 carbines, 1,600 cartridges, and 60 sticks of dynamite in the provisional barracks under the floorboards of an old ranch house outside of Del Rio, Texas. There was another stash in a cave about 10 miles away. Quote, the hour of vengeance is near, wrote Arujo. The revolution will not wait another month. We go to victory or death. While waiting for Flores Magón to issue the signal to attack, the fighters looked for work in and around Del Rio. But Flores Magón never sent the signal. He nixed the Matamoros raid, writing, quote, It is my opinion that we should not begin the movement. We need to first notify our comrades throughout the Republic of the instructions that you already have, so they can prepare themselves, so they can be ready to fight. And when enough of us are ready, then we will begin the movement at once, at all points. With the Matamoros raid on hold, Rivera began moving about with no clear pattern, 
mailing increasingly desperate dispatches from isolated locations. Under the pseudonym Lionel, he wrote from Denver, quote, I'm on the verge of being apprehended. I leave here tomorrow morning. Do not write anymore. I still do not know if I can escape. He then walked 33 miles through rain and snow, arriving in Colorado Springs with his feet, quote, full of sores. All he could afford to eat was a cup of coffee and a bit of bread. Esto es todo. That's it, he added. Alone and broke and worried that spies were following him everywhere, he begged his friends to send him funds to survive, explaining that he could not look for work. Quote, if you have a peso or two, send me whatever you can. Pennies and dollars arrived from comrades across the United States and Mexico. Still, in May of 1907, Rivera reported that he was in a desperate situation, as de desperate as could be imagined. Sin dinero, perseguido y sin trabajo, without money, pursued, and without work. Although he was starving, Rivera, the quiet teacher from San Luis Potosí, refused to give up, remaining committed to the PLM and its cause. Now, we know from these letters that Rivera's wife felt differently. Back in St. Louis, Concepcion or Conchita Rivera had given birth to their third child, a baby girl named Teresita. Whenever possible, Rivera mailed her money, which she shared with the other PLM families in the city. Manuel Sarabia, Tomas Sarabia, and Ricardo Flores Magón also sent money to the families in St. Louis, and the women split every dollar evenly. But it was never enough. As she struggled to feed her children, Conchita Rivera's letters to her husband grew increasingly tense. I make a dollar or two every week, but the work tires me and the baby won't let me be, she wrote. She wanted him to know how difficult her life was without his help. You should know that you left me in disgrace with my children. I am suffering without respite, she continued. And she was thinking about returning home to Mexico without him. I want you to understand that I cannot live here. Let me leave. There it will be easier for me to raise my children. I am confident that they, the government officials, will not harm me. Hmm. She had already consulted Rivera's mother on the matter, and his mother agreed. Son, it is time for you to quit all this with your ideas of revolution for yourself, for your poor wife, for your innocent children, and for your inconsolable mother. She wrote in a blistering letter from Mexico stolen by Furlong's men. We've already suffered so much, and what have you gained? Not much. Think about it. What if something happens to you, God forbid, if your enemies catch you? And what will happen to your family, to your unfortunate children, your inconsolable wife, and your mother who already suffers from your capriciousness? No, son. Think about it good and figure out how to escape the clutches of Porfirio Diaz. It's an incredible letter. Now, she wanted him to quit the campaign against Diaz, but Rivera chose to stick with the PLM and kept moving, always staying just one step ahead of Furlong's men. So these letters are extraordinary. They take us right into the relationships and the front lines of this revolution. Now, in August of 1907, Furlong was able to track Rivera, along with Antonio Villarreal and Ricardo Flores Magón, to a shack at the edge of downtown Los Angeles on Pico Boulevard. And with several detectives from the Los Angeles Police Department, Furlong spies kicked in the door and brawled with the rebels for over an hour where dishes were smashing, furniture was breaking, dragged them out into the streets, knocked them unconscious, and then pulled them through downtown Los Angeles and set them into the local city and then county jail. The rebel leaders, 
arrested in this dramatic raid on a, out, on a shack on the outside of, of downtown Los Angeles. They spent the next three years in jail and prison in the United States. U.S. and Mexican agents expected them to die in prison. That was the plan of the United States and Mexican governments. And they wanted them to take their revolution with them to the grave. But the Magonistas' revolution only grew while Ricardo Flores Magón and other leaders were in jail and prison. Any guesses as how a revolution grows while leaders... What? Word of mouth and the women. The sisters held it down. Now, I want to talk to you about Maria Bruce de Taravera and Conchita Rivera, who held the movement together along with many other women. Uh, Maria here was extraordinary. She would smuggle letters to and from Ricardo in the local jail. Now, how did she do that? She would show up at the jail and say, I'm just here to do my wifely duty. I would like to pick up Ricardo's dirty laundry, take it and clean it, and then bring back his clean clothes. We're good. The guard said, great. That sounds wonderful. We don't want to do his laundry. Now, she would write on tiny little pieces of paper all kinds of rebel correspondence and plans, then roll it up and sew it into the seams of his underwear, deliver the clean underwear. He would pick it out, read the correspondence, write a tiny little note back, and put it into the seams of his dirty clothes, right? and then send it back out. This way, they had rebel correspondents going back and forth across the walls of the LA County Jail, including solitary confinement. Conchita Rivera did much the same. The guards caught some of the notes, but they didn't catch all of them. They certainly didn't catch it one day when Maria went to visit Ricardo in the, in the jail, in the visitor's room, and he dropped a little note right in front of her. She swept her long skirt in, in front of it, swept it into her purse, took it out, took it to downtown Los Angeles, dropped that note off at a PLM safe house to a young man, young man named Praxidus Guerrero. My agent is convinced that I am in love with Praxidus Guerrero, and he is absolutely correct. Praxidus Guerrero was a really unlikely magonista. He was born into a wealthy family in Mexico. He grew up with private tutors and writing poetry and winning equestrian competitions. But as a young man, he renounced his family's wealth, and he decided that he was going to live as a migrant laborer, as so many other Mexicans were coming to do during this time period. He met a PLM recruiter in the mines of southern Arizona and immediately joined the PLM, emerging as an eloquent and powerful writer. And here it's really important. Ricardo Flores Magón would write these diatribes. He would go on forever. I can't give you very much from Renacion because the sentences are like a page long. They're difficult and heavy to read. Praxidus Guerrero was this eloquent, pithy writer. And he came up with some of the most famous, iconic sayings of the Mexican Revolution, such as, if you believe that you will not reach freedom by walking, then run. Sow a small seed of rebelliousness and you will reap a harvest of freedoms. Justice is neither bought nor requested as a handout. If it does not yet exist, it is made. It sounds a little bit like Frederick Douglass, right? And the most important one, it is better to die on your feet than to live on your knees. A famous anarchist saying, that he tweaked for the coming revolution in Mexico. So now in June of 1908, Prax receives this stolen correspondence from the LA County Jail from Maria, and he leads the Magonistas in unleashing three lethal and stunning raids across northern Mexico, making the world wonder 
if Diaz's time is coming to an end. Just a few days after these raids, in which dozens of rebels and government officials are killed, President Roosevelt and the U.S. Attorney General, a man named Charles Bonaparte, yes, the great-grandnephew of Napoleon Bonaparte, instructed the newly established Bureau of Investigation to crush the Magonistas' revolt. And here it's really important to note that thwarting the Mexican Revolution was one of the very first cases of the FBI. Here we are again, right at the heart of one of the most important police forces, counterinsurgency forces in U.S. history, are Mexicans, right? Right at the center of the story. The FBI, along with police officers across the country and immigration officers, began sweeping Magonistas into detention and jails across the country by the dozens. Many were imprisoned at Leavenworth Prison in Kansas. But it was too late. By 1908, 1909, 1910, the Mexican Revolution was already well on its way. One of the very first FBI agents is this man named Joe Priest who is really assigned to lead the hunt for the Magonistas. And part of the reason why we don't know this story about the FBI and um, the Mexican Revolution, right? What This new movie is coming out about the Osage Killers of the Flower Moon. Thank you very much. There was someone over here. That book argues that the FBI begins with that case. That's not the case. The FBI begins in 1908, and one of the very first um, campaigns is to crush the coming Mexican Revolution. But it was too late. By November of 1910, not long after the lynching of Antonio Rodriguez in South Texas um, had incited those riots across Mexico, the Mexican Revolution officially began. Ricardo Flores Magón and the Magonistas did not lead the major battles. The PLM's ill-provisioned army lacked the resources needed to lay siege to Diaz. And probably more important, Ricardo Flores Magón was an agitator, was an anarchist agitator. He was not a rebel Uh, military general. Ricardo believed that the aggrieved masses would spontaneously rise up and storm the the barricades once the PLM set the terms of revolt. He was wrong about that. Francisco Madero, Pancho Villa, Emiliano Zapata, and other, the names that we're very familiar with, they are the ones who rose to take the Mexican Revolution through its fighting phase. But it was Ricardo Flores Magón and the Magonistas who opened the road to revolution in Mexico. To do so, they thrashed against the interlocking cords of empire, of white supremacy, of capitalism in the United States at the dawn of the 20th century. And they forced some of the most powerful people on earth, Teddy Roosevelt, the Guggenheims, and more. He for, they forced them to demand to, or to contend with the demands and the dreams of Mexico's dispossessed. In this way, the Magonistas made history, and they made history on both sides of the border. While they are legends in Mexico, schools, streets, towns, buildings are named after the Magonistas, their story is hardly known here on this side of the border. But I think that their extraordinary tale needs to be part of the canon of U.S. history. Not only does the Magonisa story of revolution from the borderlands make clear how Mexico and Mexicans are central to U.S. history, but the motley band of migrant rebels, including intellectuals, cotton pickers, miners, and migrant workers, 
They played a major role in defining the world in which we live by defying the world in which they lived. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.